Hello and welcome back to the Art of Meditation podcast. I'm Hugo and today we are going to listen to part two of an interview with Bergs following on from the last podcast on safeguarding our consciousness. So sit back, relax, I hope you enjoy. It's interesting, you know, that there is this lobby that says technology is going to find a solution to our predicament. But, you know, our use of technology to the point where we don't actually have to be accountable to our presence here because through technology, the real challenges of being present on this planet are removed from us. We've allowed ourselves to not be responsible for our presence here. Um, and, you know, if we rely, if we expect technology to solve the problems, technology is only likely to find a way to sustain our existence here. Yeah. It's, but that but simply for humanity to survive is not the question, because it's an act of futility to just sustain a form of life that has become uh, meaningless, that, you know, that, that doesn't have a sense of uh, existential purpose. You know, what are we if we're just surviving here? To ask technology to take away our accountability and our responsibility as humanity is just negligent. It's negligence. And at the end of the day, you know, we might choose to pursue a technology, I don't know, maybe we find some source of power that means we don't have to burn fossil fuels. And as a result of it, we continue to proliferate. Maybe we manage to uh, engineer our food production in such a way that we can feed another 2 billion people on the planet. And all those extra people on the planet end up with mobile phones and 5G rolls out over 4G and we are radiated at a hundred times more instead of a hundred thousand times more instead of 30,000 times more than we were back in the 70s and we're still here. We will be here as a essentially soulless, unconscious, numb species that has no sense of its relatedness to the environment uh, uh, around it and life and the rest of life as a whole. Everything else, all other forms of life have got to survive without this technology. Maybe we can enclose ourselves in some kind of environment where we can maintain our oxygen levels and feed ourselves on genetically produced food and communicate without having to go and actually see the person we want to speak to. All these things, we and we're still alive, but unconscious. Meanwhile, every other living species on this planet has to live in the absence of that technology, and its life has to be sustained by its environment. Well, the man-made environment might well allow for humanity to survive rather than become extinct, but we have to ask ourselves what quality of life we'll have if we are successful through using technology 
Um, so that's one point. And the other point is it's quite likely the case that our technology will be our undoing in the end. If we lean on it heavily enough, you know, we might well not be able to survive in its presence. So the uh, thing that was meant to free us has enslaved us. It's enslaved us. So when we're actually looking at ways in which to safeguard our consciousness, you've kind of hinted that meditation does play quite a key role in that. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on whether or not you're saying that we do actually need to learn to meditate so we can get back our sense of feeling, so we feel connected, so we make wise choices? I think meditation is extremely important, but I don't want to say... If you don't learn to meditate, you're not going to cope. I think I'm saying that if you don't do something that is going to be put you directly in front of how you're actually feeling and gradually teach you how to uh, bring that back into a state of alignment or some coherence, you don't do something to bring your system and the quality of your consciousness back into a state of coherence, then we are going to turn around the direction in which we are driving our lives. It's just not going to happen. I mean, you know, we have known for long enough that we need to change and we haven't changed. Nobody has made the decisions across the board that are going to lead to the sort of changes that's going to give humanity and the planet, you know, long-term prospects. So if we don't address it at a level of consciousness, fundamentally change the way we relate to our experience, no matter how intelligent we are, we aren't going to make the right decisions. We haven't made them yet. Why do we think we're going to make them? So we've focused very much on what's wrong, and I think maybe now it would be quite nice to take a break and listen to one of Bugs's audios where we start to get a sense of what might happen to us if we do start to reclaim our consciousness. It's really, really worth fighting and working to reclaim your the deepest part of your heart and its capacity to feel. None of us are inherently greed or aversion rooted and that it is all in truth when it does arise in us selfishness of any kind it is all a reflection of, of not understanding or some kind of confusion but what in truth we're missing which if we weren't missing it we would not feel greed or aversion or selfishness is that connection not just to the stillness but what actually that stillness contains because when we do touch that place when we do get to the place that we are really in touch with what is deepest part of our heart, we know that there's nothing lacking, nothing lacking. And the tragedy is that we would feel, that we get to the place where we feel there is so much lacking.
I mean, particularly when we have such an extraordinary life that is so unfathomably unfathom rare. And it's, it's completely understandable that we feel something is lacking all the time, but we don't know where to look to find what feels to be missing. And we run around like rabbits in a spotlight or whatever, in any direction, looking for something that's going to give that meaning to my life. That means I can just settle down now and get on with it. That search can go on for our whole life, often does. When that connection is lacking in us, why would we think to look for it in a quiet moment when nothing of any particular interest is going on? We wouldn't. It's quite possibly the last place that we would look. And so, it's completely to be expected that we as humanity would have turned every stone over that we could possibly turn over in the search for something that is going to be ultimately meaningful to us. And goodness me, haven't we unturned a few stones in that search? And it feels almost that the more stones we unturn, the more rabbit holes we go down, the further away from that deepest part of us we get. So, you know, I want to say to you that whatever else you choose to do in your life, doing whatever you have to do to end that numbness is what you should do. Because I promise you, when it's gone, your quest for meaning in your life will be over. And you'll understand what you came here for. There is an intelligence that sits in the background behind your lives that is so profound and so full of love and somewhere inside, you all know that it's there. Or if you don't realize you know, it's only because you've forgotten. But somewhere you know, because it's the very ground of who and what you are. All of you, not some of you, not some saint sitting on the top of a mountain or in a deep forest, every single one of us, without exception. And the reason that we go away to these quiet places, to these mountaintops, to these forests, throughout history, forever folk have done it, is because somewhere inside something draws them. 
to a truth that they know is there somewhere. And actually, there is a reason that when they find it, they quite often stay. Because when you find, really, what is the true nature of your being, what is the ground that your life actually stands upon, regardless of what you think it is, you'll know that it doesn't matter where you are. You'll know that just to be alive is profoundly moving, and deeply meaningful, and extraordinary. And all the things that you think you have to add to it to make it something special is only because you didn't spot what it actually is. So, honestly, if you have started to look beyond the appearance of things or started that journey, don't stop. Even if it's incredibly hard work, and even if you get knocked sideways many times, please do not stop. Because when you have found that, all of your confusion will be over. And you'll realize what an unbelievable, extraordinary thing it is that you're alive right now. And how many unbelievable opportunities there are to do something with that life. So listening to that clearly speaks as much to our heart as to our head. And there is actually a chapter in your book called Reclaiming the Heart and just wanted to quote you um, on something you said which is the kind of core message of the chapter there is more intelligence in the heart than there is in the brain it is through the heart that we reconnect to the real intelligence behind life itself something that may have confused us at a mental level for a long time that's an interesting take on that because most people would think oh well the brain is the most intelligent bit they don't even necessarily understand that the heart contains mm -hmm. intelligence can you frame that so we can understand this a bit more deeply well we're in, in that audio we talked about there is an intelligence behind our lives that is so profound and so full of love now and previously in this interview i, I talked about well if we are that intelligent we wouldn't be living the life that puts life itself at risk. We wouldn't be living like this. So we need to reframe, first of all, our idea of intelligence. And the intelligence that I'm talking about in our heart is the intelligence that informs us through how we're feeling about what is genuinely from our well-being and what is genuinely to our detriment. And, you know, if you make that your sort of basic marker, I'm living my life in a way that is for my well-being. And I'm not living my life in a way that is for my detriment. I'm living my life in a way that is for the well-being of myself and those around me. I'm not living my life in a way that is to the detriment of myself and those around me. Now, if you make that the basic ground of what you call intelligence, then 
The real intelligence lies in our heart, which is our capacity to know what we are experiencing through how it makes us feel. Now, the brain doesn't feel. The brain thinks. And this mechanism that I'm talking about that lies in the heart, we do have to understand slightly more about the architecture of consciousness itself. Perhaps that's something a little bit too technical for this interview. Maybe we can talk about it at another stage. But that intelligence that knows what's happening to us at a very deep level arises through our heart, through our heart base, through, uh, again, we need to understand this in terms of architecture of consciousness and itself. But I think everybody is knows this at some level, even if we don't understand it. I mean, we use this phrase, I know it in the deepest part of my heart. And we, we, so we, 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 we use this phrase, we always go back to it, I know it in my heart. Your heart knows the truth. We might not understand how, and getting to the place of understanding means we do need to explore meditation and the, the whole field of consciousness in some depth. But what goes on in your head is one thing, and what you are feeling is another, and the quality of what you're feeling arises through our heart, and that's the real intelligence. That's the intelligence that wouldn't sanction you to do something that's detrimental. That's the intelligence that would sanction you to do those things that feel well-being and happiness. And yet that intelligence is overridden by our intellect, which is what we are calling, or we like to call our intelligence. I think at this point it'd be good to listen to another of your audios um, called fire in the heart and so we'll, we'll listen to that now and then come back because it leads nicely on to what you've just said to, to, to the next thing I wanted to ask you about so we'll listen to that and then come back I, I remember this morning sitting with one of my teachers once and he said to me he said you know this spiritual this flourishing of these spiritual teachings, he said, you know, it's just a match. It will blaze brightly for a while. But if you want to make a fire burn for a long time, you need to create a heart to it. And that heart is not built on knowledge alone. It's built on conduct and choices. You know, this world is such an extraordinary rare occurrence. Once upon a time, beings longed to appear here, to turn up, to experience what it is, to come into being like this.
to enter into the creative process itself was enough to wake up to what it is that you were a part of. Somehow, somewhere along the line, we've become so intoxicated with the idea of ourself as the creator. That we've bent this world to our will and lost our connection to the creative principle that is actually governing our lives. This life is not governed by the will of man. When you hear a teaching that points to your heart, some part of you knows that this life is governed by something far greater than you've yet come to understand. And I'm sure you can all remember a time when you were so moved by the longing to know, be close to that. touched by it and you'll probably recognize that you've never longed for anything more than that These teachings, these practices have always been for the purposes of opening us up so we could connect. And that's how we learn to surrender our personal will to a higher intelligence because we recognize that what is governing this life is infinitely more intelligent than we are. If it's important to you, make it the most important thing in your life. Do not let it always sit in that place that you'll come round to when you've got time for it. You can't have everything. You just can't have everything. And I think maybe it's because we're so used to having everything we want that we've forgotten the idea of giving something up to get something that is really precious. You are those people that have little dust in their eyes. You know what my teacher said about the match? Don't let it be a match. It blazes brightly within you and inspires you and then gradually or quite quickly burns out and just sits in the background as something I did once. You know, you need to put fuel on your fire and you need to tend it. And when it has a heart, then it will burn continuously and it will not need to be attended to so much. You give it a little fuel, you blow on it occasionally and it will blaze for you. But you need to put the foundation down that it has a heart. It's not just about receiving these teachings. It's about imbibing their essence, putting them into practice and living by them. 
whatever it takes. If it's come to you that it is as valuable as you might have perceived it to be. If you have come to the sure understanding that what you seek is happiness. Because you know, you've all seen at some point just how extraordinary this life is and that it needs to be honoured. That's a very moving piece. It's actually one of my favourites. But um, in that piece, you, you mentioned what you hinted at before. You, you sat in front of one of your teachers. You said that the flourishing of these teachings is, is not just based on an understanding alone. It's based on choices and conduct. Mm -hmm. And this conduct is a very key message in the survival guide. And I think it's one of the core parts of how to safeguard your consciousness and you talk about virtue um, and virtue is again something that nowadays people seem to react quite strongly against it's become almost a bit of a sort of dirty word and and to be too goody-goody is seen as a bad thing and yet it seems so fundamental to the solutions that you're pointing at in this book yeah i mean we talk about it in terms of the Buddha talks about it in terms of uh, a willingness or unwillingness to harm ourselves or to harm others in the pursuit of what we want. And this, this basic ground of virtue is, is the protection that we have to not violating ourselves and violating life and violating others to the point that life itself degenerates. Now, we are all driven by desire, and we're not, not going to be driven by desire. So we want things, and the pursuit of what we want is the basic driving force behind this sort of willful, egoic, human endeavor. And that's not going to go away. But when there is this sense of moral, uh, or, or the sense of what is basic, the sense of what is right and wrong at an ethical and moral level, then we have a, a, a check in place. So, for example, if you want something really, really badly and there is no sense of moral shame or there is a willingness to harm yourself in the pursuit of what you want or there's a willingness to harm others in the pursuit of what you want, then there is no end to which you wouldn't go in the pursuit of that desire. Now, if there is an unwillingness, an absolute unwillingness, to harm myself and an absolute unwillingness to harm others in the pursuit of what I want. No matter how badly I want something, there is this far that I will go to get it, but beyond that I will not go. And if it doesn't come at that point, then I have to learn to be without it. So this is where virtue is effectively our, our, our protection. And without it, we will consume ourselves. Because desire is the nature, has the nature to consume. Because 
you know, if you want something badly enough and you're driven by desire, you acquire what you want, all you're left now with is desire and it's not focused anywhere, it has to go and pursue something else. So that's what's driving our life is desire. Now, that's one thing. But when that sense of, uh, of uh, right and wrong, when that unwillingness to harm ourselves or unwillingness to harm others breaks down and we compromise that basic moral fabric of our being, then it's a certainty that the pursuit of our desires will eventually consume ourselves or consume others or consume the world around us. And that's what's happening. So, you know, we can, we can say that and we can see and I think we're all capable of understanding that human kindness as a species stands upon or needs to stand upon kindness as its backbone. And we can work it out, but we are all so driven by our desires that we are willing to surmount that or, or, or undermine that basic ground and pretend that we don't, we don't know it. And as we become more unconscious, our ability to feel that I'm doing something that is harmful to myself, and as we become unconscious, our ability to feel that I'm doing something that is harmful to others degrades. Without that consciousness, without that capacity to feel what I'm doing, we stop recognizing that we're harming ourselves through what we're doing. We stop recognizing that we're harming others through what we're doing. We stop recognizing that we're harming life itself, uh, the planet around us, through what we're doing. And this is why if we don't reclaim that capacity to feel that, we will lose that basic capacity of human kindness and the basic ground of our own virtue. And then we are in an age of degeneration, where consciousness degenerates and with it the quality of life degenerates. So this is what you mean when you're talking about this age of degeneration at the beginning of your book, The Survival Guide, and it seems like there's so many ways in which this is happening, and it's kind of an interlocking web of different causes. Mm, exactly, yeah. It looks like our environment is degrading on account of our actions. Um, why are our actions degrading? Because our consciousness is degrading um, as our environment degrades not just the sort of natural order, but our, the environment in which we as human beings are, are living has degraded way beyond that because this electromagnetism that we're exposed in ourselves to is profoundly degrading the quality of our experience being alive and the quality of our consciousness. The whole thing drives itself downwards. And so we end up acting more and more uh, selfish, selfishly, our capacity to care about the world around us, to compare, care about ourselves and to care about others, degrades and degenerates. And this is what, you know, the Buddha describes this as an age of degeneration. Um, and we see it going on around us. And it wasn't very long ago that we weren't yet in an age of degeneration. We were in an age where it appeared that humanity was flourishing. There was a tremendous amount of suffering still in the world. Humanity had already come to the place where it was willing and able to impose suffering upon itself individually and others. But we were, the, uh, the expression of humanity was flourishing. And then there was a tipping point where 
it was just no longer appropriate to uh, display ourselves more elaborately, to desire more, to want more. And we tipped the balance in, what did we say? It was in the 70s that life was only, the planet was only just able to continue to sustain human activity here on the planet. Now it is absolutely not able to sustain us. And when we enter into an age where our life here is not sustainable, that is one of the signs of us having become a degenerate species or our consciousness having become degenerate or degenerating. So yes, we might be progressing intellectually, we might be progressing technologically, but at a consciousness level and at a quality of life level, life is degenerating. So many people will find this an extremely challenging message and may even react quite strongly to it. What do we do? What are we meant to be doing? Well, How do we deal with this? Well, now, so there will be that action that is geared towards trying to change the way of things in such a way that it becomes sustainable. Um, and we have to make a decision about whether we feel the way that we are like living and the sort of structures and systems that we stand upon can be adapted in a way in which our life, human life here, can sustain itself without continuing to degrade the planet that we live on. And or we have to look and say that system has become so complex, so elaborate, so hard to sustain. It, it requires so much to keep us here. We have to start again. We have to start to build a way of life that recognizes what it is appropriate to take out, recognizes our responsibility and our need to put back in and say, this is what we can build up lives upon this planet on, individually and at a group level, and, and beyond that we can't. Now the Buddha suggests that during an age of degeneration, consciousness only flourishes in isolated places amongst those who are vehemently uh, committed to upholding their virtue. And in those places where beings do not organize, or where humans do not organize their life around upholding their virtue, it will degenerate. So, you know, everything is always reorganizing itself. As I said, the cyclical nature of things is such that things come into being and pass away, and in one place they're coming into being, and in another place they're passing away. That life that isn't sustainable passes away. It's a certainty. If nothing unsustainable sustains itself. That's, that's just the basic law of nature. So, Things will reorganize themselves, and we have to make a choice individually um, about whether we want to um, start to work towards building a new way of life that is genuinely sustainable and appropriate, or seek to hang on for dear life and find ways simply to survive in a way that isn't sustainable. And that's the choice that we face with. One of the things that I know you're not as a teacher is a, a pessimist about life um, and I think it's quite important to, to, to say that within the, the context of all these extremely challenging topics that we've been covering. What is your message of hope for those 
who, who are willing to change, who want to change? Well, I think, I, I think that each and every one of us came here to have this profound experience of what it actually is to be born as a human being in this miraculous planet, this thing that happens so briefly and so rarely. The chance to be here and to participate in this is the most extraordinary gift in, in, in throughout the universe. It happens so rarely, and here we are in this in the middle of this life. Now, what we are capable of experiencing, if we actually properly take care of ourselves, is something way beyond our wildest dreams. Um, to the point where I honestly believe that if you breathe your last breath, having had the experience of being fully awake here, you will know that your time and presence here was well spent and that you've already done what you needed to do. So, you know, I believe that there is something within our makeup that has the capacity to, 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 to gift us an experience that is going to shatter all of our complacency, break down and cut through all of our ignorance and show us what it is that we are here, that we've become so numb to and so complacent about and so taken so much for granted. As we start to wake up and see what this is and what actually to be a human being can be, you know, we're going to be astounded by what it is we're a part of. And the only reason we are in total awe every day we wake up and take our first breath each morning, it's because we are so numb. And as we, in stages, become less numb, and as we start to wake up, that sense of awe and wonder will creep into your ordinary experience. And as your heart opens in the ordinary experience, which is being alive, you are going to know that all of your dreams have been fulfilled, that everything you ever hoped for is right in front of you in every moment. So, you know, it might well be that we had to take ourselves to the end of this pursuit of our desires and our intoxication with our own creations and our being pleased with ourselves as an intelligent species and what we're capable of manifesting and creating and displaying ourselves of. Maybe we had to take that to the end and see it all fall apart before we were actually going to take stock and go, hold on, was there something else here going on in the background that I completely missed while I was so intoxicated with myself and what I was creating? So, you know, I, I do believe that one way or another, we all get there in the end. There is a purpose behind this life and, you know, there is a reason that this human species has evolved. And it isn't so that we can create iPhone 10, 6G and all of these things. It's so that we can wake up to what it is to just stand on this planet alive, fully conscious and able to take in what's already going on around us all the time. So if we're numb to that, we've missed the main event. And it's time to stop being numb. Well, that's a splendid place in which to end. But just before we do, could you just give us the, the, the key points? Because we talked about many, many different things and, and each topic probably 
warrants its own and further discussion. What are the key points that you would say for us to safeguard our consciousness and how we should be approaching and safeguarding our consciousness? I think, I think this, the, the, the single most important thing to start to recognise is that when you are not disturbed by your experience, in that moment you spontaneously start to experience a sense of joy, a sense of ease, a sense of happiness and a sense of peace. All of those things which we are longing for, they don't arise through the acquisition of our desires. They arise when we are undisturbed by our experience and our heart is undisturbed. And any experience that you have will give you that feeling of completeness. And the less stimulated and stimulating and gross is your experience, the quicker you get to that place where you are undisturbed the quicker you get to the place where you experience that sense of awe and wonder that I was just talking about. So what is so reaffirming about that is that at a time where we are seriously having to ask, can we continue to live the way we are? And if we stop, what's life going to be all about? Well, recognizing that we are grossly overstimulated to the point where we are just not coping. We can't remain consciousness in the face of that stimulation. As we de-stimulate, as we decompress, we allow ourselves to be more conscious, we start to find the richness in life in simpler ways, just at a time when we're being asked to live simpler lives. So we can simplify our lives and not be conscious and then feeling that we lack, and we'll feel we lack something. And then we'll just go off in pursuit of more again. But if we simplify our lives at the point of becoming conscious, we realize that that simplifying of our life is the ultimate relief and that coming to a state where we can rest within the life that we're living and find the joy that we've always wanted. Um, and that sense of awe and wonder that I was just hinting at. Um, it's, it is the answer to all our problems. So uh, reducing our needs, being easier to serve, as I say time and time again, be vehemently committed to upholding your virtue to the point where you would not harm someone else or yourself in the pursuit of what you want. And if you stand by that, you won't go wrong because that intelligence in your heart will keep informing you every time you cross the line, you won't feel well. And every time you stay within that, you will feel well. And that's the intelligence we need to start to get back in touch with. Wonderful. Well, that, that's a very positive message in a time which, for many people, is extremely challenging. And if you do have any questions or, or any points you'd like to raise regarding this discussion we've just had, please email us at podcast at theartofmeditation.org and we will discuss those points further. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to our channel. And look out for the next podcast, which will be coming soon. Thank you very much and goodbye from us here in the studio.